0: Welcome to Coming Out the Pod with me, Ed Connell, the podcast where members of the LGBTQ community share their coming out stories with me. This week's guest is the lovely and entertaining Matt Cain, who I interviewed via Zoom so as to maintain social distancing. I don't remember the last time I laughed so much during an interview. Matt talked about his coming out, how he found his spiritual home in the world of TV, and about his semi-autobiographical book, The Madonna of Bolton as well as his forthcoming book, The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, with the powerful message that it's never too late to come out. Please be aware that this podcast contains some bad language and themes of an adult nature. Well, I want to begin by uh, introducing my next guest, who is Matt Kane. And I guess depending on the age of the listener, Matt, they will know you either from your earlier days as the culture editor at Channel 4, which was when, about what year was that you were doing that?
1: Well, actually, I think that's kind of mid-period. Oh, you're <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've done so many different things. I had a whole career making TV documentaries for 12 years before that. But yeah, I was the um, culture editor on Channel 4 News um, 2010 to 2013. Um, and then you were editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine. Yeah, I did that for a, a while. Um, and in between, I've been... Um, I've written novels and done um, print, more print journalism. And, um, yeah, now I've stepped back from all of those media roles and just concentrate on the novels.
0: And you are, um, you've released three books, haven't you? And the fourth one is due out in, I think, May of next year. Is that right?
1: Yep. Um, the fourth book is called The Secret Life of Albert Whistle." Um, although I'm currently writing the fifth book, so I've slightly got my head in that.
0: <laughs> and what, what's, the, what's the fourth book about?
1: Well, interestingly, it's about um, an older gay man who these, you know, a lot of the gays we see represented in mainstream media and the narrative arts are often young and hot. This is about an older gay man who doesn't have the courage to come out when he's younger. Um, he lives in the north of England. He's a pulse man, Albert so. He comes up to his retirement. He's, he's 65. He's told he has to take false, you know, forced retirement. A few other things happen to provoke a life crisis. And he realises he's been stuck in his ways. He's been hiding away from the world. He's not been happy. In order to be happy, he needs to go back into his past to confront an unresolved trauma. And as you go along, you realise... He was in love with another boy when he was a teenager. They were, um, somehow, you don't find out why at first, but they were torn apart, haven't seen each other for nearly 50 years, and he goes off to find him. And that's what the book's all about. And in the process, you know, he goes on a transformative journey um, with his own kind of psychology and sense of self, you know.
0: Sounds good very appropriate, given that I'm interviewing you about coming out stories. And I should say, I'm I'm holding for the benefit, because we're having this conversation via Zoom, but I'm I'm holding my version of uh, The Madonna of Bolton because uh, I was one of the people that contributed to the crowdfunding for the book.
1: I know, I remember you said, I know. So that's my last novel, which was actually the first one I wrote, but it was a good 10 years ago now. And at the time, publishers kept telling me, it's two-game, main, the mainstream public won't want to read it. So I went off and wrote another couple of books, and then I kept coming back to that. And I thought, no, it is... You know, there is um, a story that people want to hear, and I want to tell it. So I did. I crowdfunded it with the publisher, Unbound. And it was their fastest funded crowd, crowdfunded novel ever at the time. And um came out a couple of years ago now, and has done really well. So...
0: It was a a no-brainer for me because um, anybody who knows me knows I'm a massive Madonna fan. How how people didn't know I was gay growing up when when Madonna was my favourite artist, I really don't know. But so when I found out there was a book that had Madonna at the heart of it and a sort of story about uh, a gay man, it was a no-brainer really to get involved in funding it, but
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, it is the story of a young boy growing up gay in Bolton in the 1980s and then clinging onto Madonna as a spirit guide to get him through, and then later on having to let go of his dependence on the spirit guide to find his own voice. But um, a lot of people have told me that they loved the book, even though they don't even like Madonna. You know, they'll say, oh, I looked to another artist, I don't know, Michael Jackson, Morrissey, Coldplay, for kind of emotional support when they were going through a hard time in life which may have been completely different um but I and I always say well yeah that's what it's about taking emotional support from popular culture but I do think um as you say um for gay men growing up in a certain time the only one we could really cling on to for emotional support was Madonna she was our kind of glorious leader, as she's been called her, a talisman. Yeah. Um, one of very, very, very few voices standing up for us when we were roundly denounced as sexual predators who were spreading disease and couldn't be trusted around children. And even people like George Michael and Freddie Mercury don't come out because they knew it would kill their career. She was just flaunting her gay friends and her gay brother and her gay dancers. And, you know, singing songs about self-empowerment and standing up for what you believe in and just her gaze in every video and every, you know, I mean, it was great.
0: It was good. I mean, I just remember sort of watching, you know, the behind-the-scenes uh, film she did of her tour and it was just the way in which, she was, you know, she had uh, surrounded by all these gay dancers and it was just such positive images in a world, as you say back then, of such negativity and sort of horrible images being portrayed about sort of, predatory gays and HIV and AIDS and the like.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I remember watching that film, you know, 1991, In Bed with Madonna. Um, Six out of seven of her dancers were gay and there were such raging queens flouncing around, going to gay pride, French kissing in close-up. The film got an 18 certificate because of that. I don't think it would even qualify for a 12, now. And, um, you know, I remember seeing it at the multiplex um, in Bury, a time where I went to school, and um, everybody was like, miming disgust when these two gays kissed. And, you know, this is like five or six years before Beautiful Thing hit the cinemas. It was the um, first time I'd ever seen a gay kiss. I literally couldn't believe it.
0: Yeah, it's 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 difficult to explain to people quite what it was like growing up, as I think you know. I think we're about three years apart. I think about three years younger than me. But growing up in that era, there was so little positivity around you know, know being gay or lesbian. I mean, it was all all negative things in the media, and so I'm pretty sure that looking back now, some of my attraction towards her was partly because of her allegiance to sort of the LGBT cause. But I think the other reason why I really love the book is it kind of, um, without sounding sort of too morose kind of is almost like how life might have been for me if I'd taken a different course, because I know that you've talked in the past about the book being sort of slightly autobiographical, but I mean, you did come out obviously much younger and and sort of at university time. I I didn't come out till my early 30s. I kind of felt reading the book tinged with a bit of sadness, kind of, you know, how life might have been different. Mm -hmm. But but, uh, no, I really love the book. It was really great. And it's been, I think there's hope there's going to be a film. Is that right?
1: Oh, there's all kinds of things happening. But to be honest, they um none of them happen quickly enough for my liking. And uh, <laughs> I'm never quite sure what I'm allowed to talk about, so I should probably just like not say anything. But yeah, exciting things are happening. And I had a meeting about it just today. So let's hope I am allowed to say things soon. Yeah. But um but I wouldn't um I mean, it's difficult to re- I mean, I know that you can regret things and You can look back and wish you'd done things sooner but once you're divorced from the context in which you were operating um it's difficult to remember just how horrific it was and how terrible it made you feel about yourself you know and um when parents only ever saw these images of gay men as um warped sexual perverts who um would never fall in love have casual sex and die lonely deaths, ravaged by AIDS. Um, I mean, it was so hysterical, the media coverage around the HIV AIDS crisis. You know, why would any parent greet that news with joy or with anything other than fear? And um, I think a lot of people were frightened of coming out for that reason. Yeah, I mean,
0: I I interviewed my mum for when I recorded my... um, coming out of story. And it's interesting, she said one of her, she had mixed emotions when I told her, but one of them was she thought, it's going to be a harder life for me because I mean, that was the right. perception of people of my parents and probably your parents' generations that being gay is difficult. And, yeah. you know, in that era, the, the media portrayal of, of gay people was either people like sort of Danny LaRue or Larry Grayson. Um, or well, and, neither,
1: was, and also, more to the point, Ed, sorry to interrupt. Neither of them was out. It was obvious that there were, but clearly if they wouldn't admit it, it was so shameful and the worst possible thing you admit that even somebody who it was so kind of obvious couldn't bring themselves to say it. It was obviously the worst thing you could be. And the
0: coverage that you would get in the media would be sort of that that maybe cover like the Pride event each year and they'd sort of show pictures of the sort of the... It's always the guys in gimp
1: masks. It's (laughs) always the guys in gimp masks and leather, studded, bolts through the nose. And I would look at them and think, that's not me. Yeah, no, like And your parents would look at it and think, well, also they didn't, I mean, nobody, you know, that whole Harvey Milk speech, come out, come out wherever you are, and um, we can change the world. You know, if everybody comes out, well, so few people were visible just in normal life um, in those days because it was so tough. You know, and it's just been a really gradual change, hasn't it? Wasn't it? Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the US Supreme Court judge, after um, legalising gay marriage in the States, she said something along the lines of, we're doing this because we all have friends, colleagues, neighbours, brothers who are gay. We have all realised that they are just like us. You know, it's exactly what Harvey Milk said. But when we were kids, none of that applied, did it?
0: No, there was no no sort of characters on soaps that you know you could look at there were there were sort
1: of no Michael Cashman on EastEnders Colin and Barry on EastEnders who were amazing but you know that that was kind of the lone outliers but if you um look at the media coverage around that it was you know awful yeah yeah, no. I remember sort of the
0: stories you get in the newspapers about their storylines, and it was always viewed sort of negatively as to why on earth we have to sort of see this on our TV screens. And um, so, Matt, so you grew up in Bolton, I'm assuming, bearing in mind your accent and the <laughs> the book, yeah. um, you know, Madonna of Bolton. But in terms of your sort of family, as we so understand it, you, you it was your parents and what one brother and one sister.
1: Um, Yeah, you've done your research, yeah. So slightly different to the book, where my character just has an older brother. Um, I had an older sister and a younger brother.
0: And how do you sort of describe your sort of family background? I mean, was it sort of middle class, working
1: class? Um, I never quite know, because what they used to say was it takes two generations to change social class. Um, My mum and dad were both brought up on council Estates, and um, so very much working class. They both went to grammar schools and my dad became a teacher, went to university. The first one from his family to go to university became a teacher. Um, so his three children, um, what he always says is we are from a working class culture and we had a working class upbringing. I think we're probably in that transitional generation. I was brought up to think of myself as working class. I'm not sure whether I tip over into middle class. I certainly do now. But, um, you know, it's difficult to say. That's why, funnily enough, in the book, I didn't want it to be about social class. Um, so I made his family much more simple working class, straight, you know, um, simplified working class. And,
0: I mean, looking back now, are you able to sort of identify when you first thought yourself that you were gay?
1: Um, I never knew a time when I wasn't. Right. I was the girly one, you know, who went to school with nail varnish on because I'd been playing with it the night before and all that. And um, everybody, well, first of all, we started off by, call, call, when I was about five, they would always call me girl. That was the big insult. Although why being female should, or feminine should be an insult, I don't quite yeah. know. But, um, and then it became gay. I was being called gay by the time I was about seven. I mean, you know, like, by everybody constantly, not just like the occasional, you know, um, just like a barrage all day. Um, and actually just hearing that word as an insult or any of those words as insults spat at you as if it's the worst possible thing. Um, you know, how are you ever going to embrace that as like the best thing that ever happened to you? <laughs> it's like, you just wish, you just wish, you just wish it, you just wish, um, you just wish it you weren't gay, don't you? I mean, that's the only logical response.
0: I was going to ask you that exact thing because, I mean, I I said before that I think I've always known as well, although it took me a little while to process it. Um, But, you know, did you want... I mean, I know that I certainly didn't want to be gay. I mean, once I sort of realised as a sort of early teenager that I I probably was gay, I desperately didn't want to be gay. I mean, what what were your thoughts about it?
1: Yeah, God, it's so long ago, isn't it now? Um, I remember... I used to love Smash Hits magazine. I used to get it delivered every other Thursday. I think it was, and I remember um, one of the f- another outlier was Andy Bell and Erasure. And I can remember reading an interview with Andy Bell in which he was talking about being gay in this pop magazine aimed at kids. It was like, oh my god! Um, and but I remember being repulsed by it and thinking um, I actually told Andy Bell this when I um, interviewed him when I was at Attitude. I said I was so terrified, and I'd been told it was such the worst possible thing. I remember reading this interview and thinking, I'm never going to tell anybody. I could never be like Handy Bell. Um, I mean, I was about 11 at the time, so <laughs> please don't hold it against me or anybody. But, you know, um, I remember thinking, um, I just didn't, I would never tell anybody. It was my shameful secret. And the, the, I mean, it's interesting actually, you know, you say that, um, you know you were saying to me i can't remember whether it was before or after we started recording that you regret you know you have some regrets about not coming out earlier but um we are quite different in case nobody's noticed who is listening you have what's called passing privilege i have i can't pretend you know there's just there's just i couldn't pretend and i say what's called passing privilege because what ends up happening is you know um people who can pass for straight, stay in the closet for longer. And I'm not sure that is a privilege. It was horrific for me. I, you know, I couldn't stay in the closet, really. I was dragged out. Um, I mean, I chose to come out. But like I say, everybody was calling me again from the start. Yeah. And um, you would have been able to hide it, I imagine.
0: Yeah, and I did. And I did, I mean, I did I it did pretty well. I mean, it's interesting, sort of, you know, speaking to family and friends about their recollection, people just didn't suspect. And I was... Yeah. I sort of carried that through to my early 30s. I think only got to the point where, as my sister said, you know, people sort of couldn't understand why you were going on dates with women, but they never, you know, turned into a second date. Um, you know, they, apart from that, people just didn't suspect at all.
1: Um, so is that is that a privilege? Is it passing privilege or is it a curse? I, I, I'd say it's a bit of a curse, if I'm
0: honest, because, I mean, I I, I said before that I consider that from the the point I came out is really when my sort of proper life started because up until then I sort of hadn't been myself and, yeah. and and that's a real burden to try and, you know, you waste a lot of energy trying to keep up a facade as to, you know, what you want people to think you are it was, and it was draining and, I you know, I I don't like talking about regrets because I don't think they achieve very much but I guess if I had my time again, I'd, I'd have come out earlier on.
1: Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... You know, I remember when I did work at Attitude and interviewing a lot of guys who had this story of so-called straight privilege, and I'd always thought it was a privilege. And I certainly think those of us who were savaged for being gay carry around a heavier burden of shame. But um, but there's completely different challenges, aren't there? I mean... Um, n- My boyfriend or fiancé, as he is now. Well, I I meant to say
0: congratulations to you and Harry, by the way. (laughs) I'm I'm so happy
1: for you, Isn't that hilarious? Well, um, the interesting thing is, he is two years older than me. He's 47. He only came out about six months before I met him, when he was about 44, I think. Wow. Um, Because he, like you, has so-called passing privilege. If I look at his life... um, I'm not sure he, it was a privilege. I'm not sure about whether I was in the more privileged position of being forced to deal with it earlier and then lead a more authentic life from earlier on.
0: Yeah, so it's a difficult trade-off, isn't it? Because obviously coming out early as you did, I mean, in a moment, going to ask about, you know, what age you did come out. But if I remember correctly from what I've heard you talk about before, I think you were still in sick form when you first came out. And that that can't have been easy. Um, And that had been pretty brave at the time.
1: I know. Well, um, also, it's difficult for people to remember. I mean, that was quite radical at the time, but also it's difficult for people to remember that um, in those days, there was no social media. You could keep secrets better, actually, Um, you know, without mobile phones and things. So it was a very gradual thing for me. I did come out towards the end of sixth form to my close friends. Um, And then what happened is I did languages at university. So I went away to France for a year, in a gap year to work as an au pair and as you know um gays and children we were told you know we couldn't be trusted we were paedophiles we'd interfere with children so um my coming out didn't progress um and when i got back i went to university and from then on it continued i was out to everybody at university from the start i told my sister when she came to visit i later told my brother and then in the Easter holidays of my second year, I told my mum and dad. And just before I ask you about sort of their reactions, I mean, the, do you remember who the very
0: first person was you told? You sort of said you told friends at Sickform, but was there somebody you confided
1: in first of all? Um, yeah, I t- um, well, basically, I told <laughs> a good friend at the time when we were out drinking, and um, she did then blab. The secret. Yeah. And I was literally, it was right at the end of sixth form. I was studying for exams and I was terrified of it coming out. And um, I went and told my three closest friends and um, it was all fine. Um, And two of those three closest friends I'm still very close to now and speak to a lot. You never forget that kind of thing. If you think this secret you're carrying within you is like, the most dirty, disgusting secret and it will make everybody turn against you. And then the first couple of people you tell um, don't do that. When actually they were subject, subjected to the same media onslaught that was anti-gay as my parents. You know, they didn't have anything positive to go on really. And they were... Um, they were great.
0: And were they just out of interest? Were they, were they men or women?
1: Always girls, for that kind of thing. I mean... Yeah, although actually a couple of um, straight male friends, I did also tell shortly afterwards.
0: And did, uh, I mean, did, you say that she sort of told a few people, but did you get any grief about that at sick form from people finding this, out?
1: This first one, um, no, I didn't get any grief because this first one had kind of blabbed it to somebody else and I kind of acted to stem the spread of the secret and then told my... I mean, I was in the process of it, you know, it was all kind of happening anyway. We'd been to a couple of gay clubs and, you know, started talking about um, that kind of thing. You know, I, I was kind of almost there with my close friends and then I did it. Um, the girl who was a close friend at the time, who blabbed it, I basically <laughs> never forgiven her for her and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I did actually, she came to work in London briefly and um, I did, she asked to meet up for a drink and I did meet her, but um, I just kind of thought, oh, this is like in the past now, I don't really want to go over all that.
0: Yeah. Mm. And you say your sister, you told your sister first, what's the age gap between you and your sister? My sister's 15 months older than me. And did you have a sort of close relationship with her? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still do. And what was her reaction when you told her? Oh, my God, you're going into that all the emotional stuff. (laughs) Um, Well, my sister came to visit me at university, and um, I thought... I remember thinking, shit, you know, I'm out to everybody here. I can't tell my entire friendship group um, and everybody to not tell her while she's here. Also, I won't be able to enjoy it. I'll be on edge. And... Um, If she were to find out that I'd told all my friends to lie to her, she'd then be really upset. So she basically arrived and I told her. (laughs) um, I know, and I think it was, um, I mean, I don't think the news itself was shocking, but it was, you know, she hadn't expected to arrive and be told that straight away. Um, You know, and I mean, it's funny, isn't it? You know, I can tell you, I can dissect, I mean, you never forget these scenes. I can dissect every word of every and everything that happened with my sister and brother and my mum and dad. But there's some things, you know, you think every gay person I know is being on a journey. Um, you know, you end up in a place, hopefully, or certainly I have, that's great. And relationships are still strong and never better, you know, once you open up to them. And then if they don't know anything about what that means, you have to have a journey and discover it together you know I was only just finding out myself at the time but um yeah I mean obviously of close family members there were some who weren't necessarily positive at the beginning but are very positive now so I'd rather not um you know go over every comment that was made although my sister was fine actually it was more the kind of shock of it um, and
0: I, I'm impressed because I mean, I literally got drunk every
1: time I told anybody I was coming out. But I, well, that's, I always said, I was quite, funnily enough, in some ways, I was like completely clueless and naive and so like the opposite of wise. But um, in other ways, I actually, um, I actually was quite switched on and I always said I didn't want to be drunk. Um when I told important people and after that first time, and I told this friend when I was drunk and she blabbed it. I, so I told my sister when I was, I told all these close friends that I was stone cold sober. I told my sister when I was stone cold sober. I told my brother, it came out when we were on holiday and I, we were both drunk at the time. Um, and I told my mom and dad when we were stone cold sober. Um, I kind of wanted to do that. I don't know why. Uh, well, there's plenty of reasons why. I'm not sure which were the ones that were most kind of, you know, weighing on my mind at the time.
0: I just found it so difficult. I mean, I just needed the Dutch courage, really. Not because I ever generally thought there'd be a bad reaction, but it was just, traumatic.
1: Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, I don't want to interrupt you, I was just going to say there's there's a difference between, you know, taking the edge off, having a bit of Dutch courage with a drink or two, and being wasted.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Thankfully, I was most of the former, rather than the latter. <laughs> although, <laughs> although not always, I have to say. Um, and so your parents then, I mean, obviously your parents are similar age to me and they've sort of grown up with all that negativity. I mean, w- what was their sort of immediate response from telling them?
1: Well, funnily enough, I've never told anybody this. I was certainly not in public, but I actually had tried to come out to my parents beforehand. Um, so what happened was, um, I was so terrified of doing it. So I told my sister, I think I told my brother and I was going to tell my mom and dad, this is the second year of university now. And I was just, I did, I couldn't, and I knew I was going to do it so, but I couldn't picture like saying, sitting them down and saying, I've got something to tell you. I just wasn't sure I'd be able to get the words out. So I thought, right, I'll write them a letter. And I was staying, I went to stay with a friend from university in his family home for a weekend, you know, like you do when you're students. And um, while I was there, I sent a letter. I can't remember what day of the week it was. I sent a letter, um, first class, early one morning, knowing it would get there the following day when I was getting home. Um, and I thought, so I'll just kind of do it and then go back and we'll have the discussion and I can deal with that. Anyway, so I wrote this letter and I was like, literally so nervous and all churned up, got on the train home um, was like really nervous. And I got home, walked through the door, expecting this, like the biggest expert, the biggest, you know, discussion of my entire life. Today, it's probably ever. And the letter hadn't arrived. <laughs> And I had to then, and then I thought, fuck, I can't like, you know, so, the next, so then I had to get up early the next morning and hover by the letterbox until it arrived. In those days, first class post was supposed to arrive the next day. Um, and it, I intercepted the letter because once I was in the house, I thought, no, it's the wrong way to do it. But, sorry, to go back to your original point about telling people drunk and this, that, like, the other, I've kept the letter and I have since... Read it and actually, I mean, God, I was like, I had so little access to, um, kind of gay culture and experiences and education. And, um, it's actually, you know, it's about two or three pages long. It's actually quite cool and quite wise and quite, um, strident and standing up for myself, but also very conciliatory and, um, sensitive and compassionate. Um, yeah, I am kind of. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm always, when you read people writing memoirs and they have a whole scene in direct speech from 50 years ago, you think, how do you remember that? And I feel like I can remember a lot of my coming out scene with my mum and dad, but reading this letter was like, you know, this amazing access into my mind at the time and what I wanted to say to them. Yeah.
0: Um, did you actually get all that all across them when you did finally... Because kind of come out to them, did he, you know? Yeah. And, and, and what was sort of their reaction?
1: Um, well, I'd um, been meaning to do it since this aborted attempt with the letter, and they said they were going at the Easter holidays of second year to Ireland on a short holiday. My dad's ancestor, uh, ancestors are from Ireland. He wanted to do a bit of genealogy research, and they were going for a short holiday to Ireland. Did I want to come, but my brother and sister weren't going? I thought, right, I'll go and do it on this holiday. And all the way on this trip to Ireland, I was thinking, God, I'm going to come out to them. And on the first night, we got to Dublin. What you doing in Dublin? You go round pubs. And I thought, um, I am not going to tell them when drunk. I need to tell them at the beginning of the night. And the first pub we went into was... I can't remember, but it's cold. I can picture it so clearly. The oldest pub in Dublin. And I have been back to it since actually and relived the thing in my mind. Um, And my sister had just got engaged. They were talking about her wedding. And I can't remember, they said something about my brother's relationship at the time and said something about me. And I said, oh, well, you know, I won't be getting married. I mean, ironically, I am now, but that I mean, gay marriage was, like, you know, I mean, we just didn't even imagine that was going to happen. We didn't, even... oh,
0: I know exactly. Yeah. I mean, I saw your tweet when you got, in, got engaged saying, you know, you grew up just not thinking that was ever going to happen to you. And as did we? We I... didn't even have
1: equal age of consent. We could be fired from our jobs and, you know, all those kind of things for being gay. It didn't occur to me we'd be able to get married. Anyway, this is how the conversation came up. And I said to them, I'm not going to be getting married. Um, I'm not into girls. I am attracted to men. So I couldn't say the words. I am gay at that age. And then, and then my mum said, are you telling us you're gay? And I said, yes. And then we had a little pause and I had to go to the loo and literally have some like breaths of air and like run cold water on my, splash cold water on my face and all that. And then went back in and we had a conversation and it was fine. Um, My mum always knew, um, as is often the case. Um, My dad kind of knew deep down, but denied it and was very shocked. It was... um, And went very quiet for a couple of days. But their reactions were very much coloured by what we were saying before, thinking that meant I would be unhappy and wanting the best for me and being frightened about what that meant. Um, And, you know, I... I wouldn't say... I had any anger, but I did... I remember I've always... You know, my mum and dad are great, and particularly now, but like I said, but he's been on a journey. And when my mum said she'd always understood, um, I said, well, why did you never let me know it was, it was all right? Why did you never think to let me know if you could sense what a horrible time I was having? And um, why did you never, you know, Make it clear to me that I would still be loved and everything would be all right. But I mean, the answer is they were. Terrified. She was terrified of it herself. Um, was praying it wouldn't be true. You know, you don't want to do anything that may be seen as encouraging it. I mean, there were no. There was no understanding of it as something that you are by nature rather than by choice in those days, was there?
0: Yeah, and I used to, it used to make me laugh when sort of going back to that era. The, the idea that people thought you'd choose to be gay. I mean, back in you know, the 80s and 90s, that was, well, certainly the 80s, that was the last thing you'd have chosen to be. I mean, it was just so, so bad. Although, interestingly, <laughs> um, I am i sort of said when I recorded my coming out story that if I had my time again, I'd choose to be oh, gay. I mean, I, God, I, yeah. I...
1: Best thing that ever happened to me. So happy. Literally, the best. Yeah. there's not a day that goes by um, when I don't wake up and, you know, thank Mother Nature that I'm gay. And in fact, funnily enough years ago in my 30s i had psychotherapy for five years and it was amazing um not necessarily about sexuality but obviously that's you know bound up with it just learning to love myself more and all that and at one point as an exercise in psychotherapy i had to have a pad of paper on one side all the things i liked about being gay and on the other side all the things i didn't like and there was literally nothing that I didn't like. Everything was that like positive.
0: <laughs> no, it's funny, though, because if you'd said that to me when I was 20, back in 1992, I'd have probably said, you're you're mad. You know, I, I, There can't be anything good about being gay. Whereas, you know, I'm the same as you now. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, happy that I'm gay and would choose the same way all over again.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was like that from... As soon as I started telling people and being accepted, I was always quite... Um, I was never actively political um, until my late 20s, probably, but I was always quite um, feisty and um, you know, uncompromising within myself. You know, I was brought up Catholic and um, I wouldn't have told anybody, yeah, oh well, that's, that's a whole other conversation, but um, I wouldn't have told, <laughs>
0: that's what the next scene
1: did. <laughs> I wouldn't have told anybody why at the time, but at the age of 13, 14, I absolutely refused to go to church anymore. And I was left and right kicking off with... I went to religious schools. I was always kicking off with them about stuff. You know, I was um, quite, like, feisty when it came to that kind of thing inside. You see, my difficulty was I I enjoyed being Catholic. I mean, I...
0: And I knew that the moment I sort of had to, you know, admitted to myself that I was gay and then told other people that that would end my association... With the church, which added an extra yeah. degree of complexity to the, the situation. But uh, as you say, the, the religion thing's a whole
1: well, nother... That, that is a really complicated thing, isn't it? I think if you're, um, you know, friends of mine who've been brought up religious, it's part of their identities. If you think that that's going to go, it is quite hard. I mean, it was easy for me because coincidentally, I didn't believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that that made it a bit easier. I still don't. So you know, uh, it's quite easy for me to just you know attack the Catholic Church.
0: Yeah, well, I, I still I do still believe in God, but it, it obviously my relationship with the church is slightly complicated, bearing in mind their attitude towards my uh, my lifestyle. But uh, and. I always say to people that you have to come out sort of dozens of times, not just sort of once or twice, but I'm guessing, Matt, when you're editor-in-chief of a gay national magazine and then you write books about LGBT stories, you, you probably don't have to do that oh anymore, God, do you? I've not
1: come out for ages. But also, that is another thing about having so-called passing privilege. Um, the number of people who can pass for straight, you tell me that they're constantly having to tell people they're gay. People make the assumption that they're straight. Um when you are visibly very presenting as gay and can't do anything about it, even if you'd want to, you know, from the, you know, I I've, I've, can't remember the last time I had to tell somebody I was gay, but even, you know, before I started writing books and doing these public facing jobs, I, I left university and I knew I could only work in an industry where my sexuality would be accepted. And I gravitated towards arts, creative industries, um, and got the first job uh, that I got was in TV, and um, was working in... I worked for ITV for 10 years, and, um, you know, it was full of gays, and we just used to mince around. I used to have a... I used to work on the South Bank show for Melvin Bragg, and all by my desk, I had a whole side of the wall, which was my hunked wall, with pictures of, like, Mark <laughs> Wahlberg with his top off, and Vin Diesel, and this, that, the other. Nobody, did, nobody could curl less. I mean, it was like... You know, loads of gays mincing around, and that's kind of what I wanted. So I would never have put myself in a position where I had to come out. And it was blatantly obvious that I was gay anyway.
0: <laughs> and, and the weird thing is, I still get questions where people ask me questions about my girlfriend on the assumption that, you know, I'm straight, even now, which is sort of a bit do odd. But you been offended by about...
1: the assumption, or do you think it's a natural assumption?
0: Um I'm not I don't get offended by it, but I I, I always put people right. You know, it's not a question of just a sort of remaining silent not saying thing. I'd always say, you know, I don't have a boyfriend at the moment or I'm seeing some, you know, seeing a guy or whatever. So it doesn't really really become an issue, but makes them think that maybe next time they'll think twice about making that assumption. And I also funny hearing about the media, because my sister who I came out to first of all who's six years younger than me, so she's just younger than you. She did a performing arts degree, and then she went to work in television and ended up at ITV. And I kind of think if I'd done maybe a degree like that or gone into media um, rather than law, that it might have been very different again in terms of my coming out. Well, I know lots of
1: actors who say, you know, particularly older ones. Ian McKellen always says it in interviews. Um, One of the things that attracted him to the theatre was he knew there would be people like me. Even before... It was so explicit, he just sensed there would be you know queers in the theater, as he puts it, and um, oh, I just didn't even countenance applying for any kind of job where I wouldn't be around people like me, and I couldn't be brazen and flamboyant and <laughs> all of those things, you know, my spirit had been in a cage, and it had been set free. I wasn't going to shove it back in, you know, and also. Actually, you know, if, I don't know if you, uh, you know, as I said earlier, when I had to go and do a gap year in France, um, you know, I slightly, I didn't go back, well, I did go back into the closet, or I certainly didn't progress any further in my journey of coming out of the closet. Um, and, you know, I'd had a taste of freedom and self-acceptance. I just was like, I'm never going back there again, you know.
0: Matt, I'm always asking all the interviews sort of two questions. And the first them is... If you had your time again, so you were going through the whole coming out experience again, uh, what, if anything, would you do differently?
1: Um, oh, it's another world, isn't it? Um, so it's difficult to say. The, certainly the first person I told when drunk this girl who then started blabbing it around, I wouldn't have told her. But then again, that was the catalyst that pushed me. Um, she wasn't particularly important, so maybe it wasn't the end of the world to tell her drunk. She's not, com- you know, moved forward with me in my life. Um, whereas the others were. So she was a practice one that I got wrong, and I got the others right. So, I mean, I ended up telling my brother when I was drunk on a holiday. Um, and, yeah, maybe I regret doing that drunk, but I hadn't intended to tell him. It kind of came out, so... I don't know. I mean, when I look at this letter I was telling you about, I think if that's what was in my head when I was going through this journey, which was quite protracted, as I've explained, um, I kind of was pretty much doing it right. You know?
0: I mean, it sounds from listening to your story that there's not really much I think I'd have changed if I'd been in your shoes. I mean, it was you did it relatively young. You sort of went about it the right way, sort of telling friends and then Close family, first of all, and then that was it. I mean, it sounds relatively uneventful.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about uneventful, because when you're living through these things, they're the biggest events of your life, they're so dramatic. But it, it certainly went um without any more hitches than you could have hoped for. Do you know what I mean? It was um Yeah. Yeah, there was some there was some feelings we had to negotiate and responses we had to work around, but um don't think really, in view of the context and people's backgrounds and what was going on at the time, that it could have gone any better, really.
0: And the other question I ask everybody is, what advice, if any, do you have for people sort of at the start of their coming out journey at the moment?
1: Um, Well, it's interesting for me, thinking about this, because, as I said, my other half now only did it in his mid-40s. I don't know any person everybody who's coming out it's the biggest thing and you think of all the worst case scenarios and yeah there are some horrific worst case scenarios some people do get thrown out of home and this that the other um but i don't know a single person who regrets coming out no i've never met a single person who regrets coming out. um however hard it is and i think that's important to know i've probably got you know what i've probably got more wisdom but right now it's deserted me
0: (laughs) (laughs) no i think i think listen i think that's a a great message which is that you know it it does get better i mean the 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 coming out process made me the sort of the happy person that i hadn't been before and you know life's been just so much better since i came out and i I, like you i don't have any friends who would say any differently to that and i think that's a sort of really positive i mean
1: sometimes you do i mean you know, like I said, worst-case scenario, people do get thrown out of home, and there is that middle ground. You know, there's obviously the wonderful response we're all hoping for. There's that middle ground where you kind of slightly have to move away from the people you've grown up with and go and find your people and become the person you're meant to be, and that's quite sad, letting go of certain things. But, um, you know, it's all a long process, isn't it? But it only ever leads to... um happiness and um a positive outcome within yourself well Matt,
0: i've really loved our chat it's been really good fun i'm um, sorry to make you sort of remember all those events of many years ago and um i'm looking forward to reading your book when it comes out in may next year may
1: 2021 the secret life of albert Whistle on the headline review is the publisher although i think you can actually i think the pages are up on amazon already and we're doing the um, cover. I don't think you can order it or anything yet, but um, you can read about it. And I think I get the cover design soon, so it's very exciting. And yeah, it's about an older gay man who didn't come out, but has the chance to later in life. And will he take it?
0: Never too Never late.
1: too late. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank,
0: Thank you very, very much, much, Matt. Right. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe. And get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram or through the website.